Good evening. So our New Testament reading tonight is from Acts, the second chapter, verses 42 through 47. You can find it in your bulletin or, of course, up on the screens. Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me as we pray? Lord, we trust that you're the one that has brought us here. Even if uh, we didn't want to come, or even if it was hard to get here, or we just happened to be visiting, uh, nothing in your plan is by chance. And uh, here we are, you've called this gathering together. And we know it's for our good. So we want to say we're going to trust that you're going to continue to work. And we pray that you would work powerfully through your word because you're alive in it. In Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. I've shared a bit before that when I was uh, invited as an agnostic non-Christian high school student to a Bible study by my band director and his sons, who I knew, one part of me thought, this is really weird. But I trusted them, but more than trusted them, I was drawn to them. I was drawn to them. I grew up in an affirming, loving home. But their home had a light to it. It had a light in it. And even uh, these many decades lo- uh, you know, later, even though they've moved from that home, sometimes when I'm in Pittsburgh, I find myself driving by that tiny house and just remembering, remembering the light that I experienced and how God had drawn me there. Now, that isn't to say... The Christian families are just full of light, or communities, or churches, that they're perfect. In fact, if a a Christian community or family or church is uh, committed to projecting that they're perfect, it'll become a very dark place for people. But for churches and communities and Christians that are open open to the renewing presence of God. They become not only a reflection of Jesus, they become a destination point. They become a point, a place where people have to go, need to be part of it. And here in the book of Acts, which we've been studying, the account of the early church, we have the first summary 
provided by the author Luke of the church. There's one a little bit later that I'll refer to. And as you heard that being read, whether you are a skeptic here, whether you are a longtime Christian, all of us, I think, at some point we're going, you know, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have mind being part of that community. Man, there's something really attractive, maybe even irresistible about what we just heard, this community that's growing spiritually and relationally, they're intimate and they have hospitality and meals all the time and they're sacrificing and meeting needs. Who wouldn't want to be part of that community? And what a contrast it is, not only in that day, but in our day as well, right? Because we are confronted with the own brokenness of our lives, but also our culture. What a contrast that would be to the bickering we see and the division we see and the alienation we see and the disparities we see. Last night, a a handful of us um, were at the Little Lights banquet and something that um, the founder, Steve uh, Park, said was that the average income of the families he works with is $14,000 a year. Who of us would imagine living in D.C. with that? So here we have this contrast, and we might look back and go, yeah, you know, but they, it was different because of what they had. But they faced the same challenges, Right? I mean, in this new community, this new church that was gathered together, I mean, they were, I I think sometimes we can look back and think, man, you know, if I would have been there, I'm sure um, my faith would be different. Or I'd be less discouraged by what I see. But they faced, you know... That new community had political differences, political divisions that would come up that were from different cultural backgrounds. It was a cross-cultural community, different socioeconomic backgrounds. I mean, they were assembled from all over the known world because of the festival that had come and then this preaching and conversion. So what was it that enabled that gathering to become this, so coherent, so gathered, one community. I mean, it is like a, a, the point of the spear, that effective. Well, it was Jesus and his spirit. And as far as I know, both of them are still ready and willing, still available, and of course available here because we see reflection of this in our community. We just heard a testimony about it. Needs being met. So what we're talking about here is we want more. Give us more. Give us more of the Holy Spirit. Give us more of the gospel. Let this community reflect that. So I want to look at two things. I want to look at the cause of this irresistible community and the effects of it, okay? Cause and effects. So ultimately the first cause, as I said, was Jesus and his Holy Spirit. We've been studying, if you've been around for the study, 
uh, and I'm sure some of you were, some of you haven't. What has occurred is, you know, Jesus, after sacrificing his life and rising from the dead, ascends to heaven, and he says to his gathering, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm going to send you a helper, an advocate, and that is the third person of the Christian Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he will actually bring the Father and me, our presence, to you, because they are one. The Spirit will come, and the Father and I will be present in a way that has not been true all throughout the history of God's gathered people. And we live on the other side of that. We're beneficiaries of that. The chance for you to know God the Father and God the Son has never been better, never been greater. And the chance for this church to become one new people, has never. we have better odds than, than the games that you bet on. I don't know if that's true. Sometimes things come out of my mouth, and on Monday, someone's going to write me an email, and I'm going to realize I was dumb to say that, so please forgive me if I, anyway. Those were the first causes, but what about the secondary causes? Secondary causes, two things, and both of them are very significant. One is they were available. They were available. We find two key words. One of them throughout the text is together. They were together. The word for that would be fellowship. Now, modern culture is good about emphasizing community, but when it comes to spirituality, it's individualistic. Modern spirituality isn't done in groups typically. It's done with just a person. Right? My spirituality, your spirituality. And maybe if they kind of meet up a little bit over cappuccino, that's cool. But it's not your spirituality ain't changing mine. And the church has been impacted by that, right? I, I mean, I grew up in faith that taught me that the most uh, important thing was my personal devotion to God and then having a small group of people that were my friends, normally people I picked because I liked them, and then the church, but actually, in the New Testament, you find the exact opposite. It's this gathered people who I didn't pick. And yes, there were small groups, and yes, my time, but it was a change, a flip, how they were together. That was the commitment, the primary commitment. And, and church, church wasn't a perk, it was essential. It was essential to spiritual life. And this, of course, flowed out of Jesus. When Jesus came, he didn't just do like a bunch of one-to-ones with people. He established 12, and that grew to other disciples, 120. But more so, if you hear Jesus talk about the church like this, that they may, that, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. You see, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a perspective change. It's this idea that us being together isn't sort of a nice thing. It is essential to spiritual growth. Essential. Right? I, I, I mean, your, how you're doing spiritually impacts me. And how I'm doing spiritually will impact you. 
because God has made us a family of God. So together, they're available for that to happen. But the second thing we find is every day. Every day. Now that doesn't mean they were always at the temple together or the same people were already meeting. But what we find here is that there was a day-to-day gathering of God's people. And it wasn't to be a fortress. It wasn't a holy huddle. It wasn't ingrownness. How do we know that? Because people were flooding in, their neighbors and their friends. But there was a regularity to it. Again, I think we think about, well, you know, that was back then. It was easier because they just sort of sat around the fire and chewed on straw. They had a lot of time. You know, I, listen, we were at, at our discipleship program this year, a Discipleship Catalyst. One of the topics we brought up was time. And we all know this, this is anything new, but right, all the promises of, of progress in technology, that life would be easier and we'd have more time, well, we just we got filled with other stuff, right? I, I mean, I've been in D.C. for 20 years, and I don't see people with a lot of time. I don't see it in my own life. Hmm. Why is that? Yes, part of it is the fact that we live in the pace of an urban place and it's mobile life and there's the glut of information that comes and it's the driving part of D.C. with the, you know, anytime you go somewhere and some, someone says, uh, you know, how'd you spend your week, you, you feel like you better say something really good. I better not say, you know, I, you know, I just kind of like, I, I just sat around and I prayed and I meditated. You know, I'd see how see how many friends you make at a party with that. Um, and this day by day life was both informal and formal. They would meet at the temple and meet in homes. You know, uh, there was a place east part of the temple, Solomon Portico, where Jesus would teach, and it could it could have thousands and thousands. So by this time, there's about five thousand people in the church, so they would have formal worship services there. But then they were constantly meeting in homes with one another and other gathering. You know, the beautiful thing about that is uh, as they met together, well, I'll, I'll get back to that. I'll get back to that. But it wasn't, the relationships were not occasional or casual. They were intentional. Uh, recently, the elders um, read a book no, that's not true. We, we didn't read a book. What was it? We read an article. Aren't you proud of us? A whole article. I think it was more like a blog. It, it was like a blog article. It wasn't like a multi, but it was really, most of us read it. I mean. Anyway, so we talked at least, okay? And the topic was Friendship. And the stats, I know, of course, you know, about middle-aged men, but I, you know, it's everybody. And the writer of the article said something that was, you know, you kind of, you press, like, okay, maybe that's exaggeration, but the more I've thought about it, I've been like, maybe, maybe that's true. He just said, don't call it a real friendship unless it, it requires regular, scheduled, intentional time. He said, it's not a friendship. Unless it's, 
it's got a commitment and a covenant and a cost to it. And maybe then we would say, well, how am I going to do that with all these people? Maybe, you know, we have to acknowledge their gradations of friends, right? We're not, not everybody can be in that small circle. But the question is, are there friends like that? That was challenging. But I, I want to pull this together and say this. This idea of together every day. The question that I'm asking myself and I'm asking you is, are you available to grow? Are you available for God to do this in this community? And I don't know how. I mean, this was part of what we were talking about. I, what, would it, what would this look like? And, and we're not starting from scratch. We have community groups and people are spending time together. You know, we're off to a good start. But the question is, it, it takes, I think, you know, immense faith shows up in small things. Sometimes we're thinking, you know, I, I wish I could do this great moment of faith. I'll tell you, I think in D.C., immense faith looks like this. Don't be a cynic. Don't gossip about people. And don't be driven by the schedule of the city. Like, could we make time in a new way? And it would mean for every one of us, right, you have to do this inventory and say, where can I change my life? Because I know, let's, let's appeal to self-interest here. My spiritual growth is dependent on it. Dependent on it. If we want to become this attractive community. Is, is my life built around my career or my social life and not this gathering. And again, I'm not talking about a holy huddle. But this was the early church. Every day, gathering together. All right, so that's availability. But one more thing, priority. The other word that catches your mind is devoted. Devoted. And there were three areas they were devoted to. The first was learning together. Learning. It says that they were, there was an intense environment of learning Scripture, learning the Word of God. It says regularly they were sitting before the apostles and they were being taught and they were putting into practice, they were listening and putting into practice what they were being taught. And if we understand that the Word of God is the very presence of God, if we understand that the word of God is living, we understand this, it wasn't just the time of sort of like filling your head. It was before, it was in the living presence of God. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, spent 40 days teaching them. So of course they had the culture in their mind, like we're going to be a high learning community. We're going to meet every day and be taught and learn. And it isn't just like I'm going to read a little bit, but like we're going to learn together. It's easier to do everything together. Now, I'm going to make a, a, a secret, true confession to you. As an elder, one of the things that nags me as I look at my tenure uh, of being a teaching elder, a pastor, and my job and what I do, the one thing I wonder is, should, should I, should we be teaching more? Should we be teaching more? Especially, like, I'm a teaching elder. 
I, I don't, like I preach every week. That's, that's a lot, but do we hear from this guy enough? Do we hear from Andrew enough? Do we hear from David, from Joe? I mean, if we believe elders are word, so that's, it nags me, it nags us. To, I, I want to say, you know, when I get up to see Jesus, he's going to go, man, well done, my good and faithful servant. You didn't really teach as much as you were supposed to. But, you know, but it'll be okay. I trust they'll be gracious. But that's, I'm just letting you in. But here's the other secret fear. If we do, will people want to come? If we do it, would people want to come and be taught? Should we be devoted more to teaching? And should you be more, more devoted to having been taught? I don't know. It's just nagging me. They were devoted to that. They were also devoted to praying, and this was formal and informal. Literally, the translation is they were devoted to the prayers, which probably means they were sticking to the temple hours, which is really cool because even though they didn't continue on with the animal sacrifices because they understood that Jesus was the whole meaning of that, right? Jesus came as the sacrifice, the atonement for sin. They didn't need to do that anymore. But one thing they did they fulfilled Jesus' longing that the temple would be a house of prayer. Some of you remember when Jesus took up the whip and said, this place has become anything but prayer. Now, with the giving of the Holy Spirit, the temple is a place of prayer. Lots of prayer going on. And they probably kept some of those hours. You know, we, one of the ministries we have in our network is the Daily Prayer Project. And it's a chance to pray together. It, you know, there's morning prayer and evening prayer, and, you know, maybe that's something that you would get part of, but there was this liturgy of prayer together. And we know this, there was a culture of prayer because, you know, before the Holy Spirit comes, 120 people are praying. And before they pick a replacement for Judas, the apostle, what are they doing? They're praying. And what we'll see next week is after they're persecuted, they're praying. It was just a culture of prayer. I remember being in college, and um, this was at Berkeley College of Music, and this guy showed up, this student, and he was a missionary kid from Nepal. And he had been, like, literally raised over there. He was this, like, I had never met anybody like this guy. You know, he, first of all, he showed up, his dress was completely different. You know, he just showed up, but he just had this almost like John the Baptist quality about him. And I remember we were uh, walking through a mall one day, and I was just like, you know, you just share. And I said, yeah, you know, I probably, yeah, I, this has happened. I probably need some prayer for that. And he goes, let's pray. You know, there's people like walking everywhere. He just takes me, he goes, Lord. And he just, you know, calls down the Holy Spirit upon me. And for this guy, prayer was like a culture. I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray, and that's just what we do. I think the reason, they, they had no reason to believe that God wouldn't hear them and not answer their prayers. They had no reason to believe that. Maybe it's just like the beauty of the newness of their faith. Or you, you know this too, when God moves. And, and it isn't, they, man, they had to pray for things like us, where you pray and you wait, and you pray and you wait, and you pray and you wait. But there was this fundamental belief God hears, and when God hears, God acts. I believe, in the end, Jesus will answer all of your prayers. Okay, you're going to say, well, what? Let's, 
let's presume, of course, according to his will, okay? But that still leaves a lot of prayers. It's just a matter of, like, if it's going to happen, how you want it to be and when you want it to be. All the good things you're asking for, he's going to answer. Because he said he would. That's exciting. And then there was the breaking of bread. That not only meant having meals together, but also the Lord's Supper, this table. And many times they would do it together, which is kind of, you know, cool. Like they would get together in their homes. And before, you know, we have a lot of Christians start with a prayer, right? Well, they would break the bread. And that would be a reference to the breaking of bread of Christ. And then later they would have wine. But their table fellowship was constantly aware of the uh, death of Christ. And not just like, oh, the more, when we, when we talk about the death of Christ, we're talking about everything that came from it. Right? That Jesus, God had sent his very own son for them. And that they were washed and they were cleansed and they were called and they were named and they were at God's table with one another. Right? We practice it a little bit differently. Meg was um, reminding uh, us and uh, someone else, a friend, just as she was thinking about her experience with the supper. And, you know, it, the New Testament does not tell us exactly how many times you ought to celebrate it. But I would say it seems pretty clear to me it should be more rather than less. Right? So uh, you may believe or come from a church. Well, if you're part of this church, you probably don't believe it because you have it weekly. But, you know, some places, well, maybe it's every month or every. And I, I remember when we started having the table, there were some people who said, well, you know, I don't know about this. Maybe it's going to lose its magic. What I really wanted to say was, because I think the person was married, do you feel that way about your intimate relationships? Right? We don't want to participate in this too much. It'll lose its magic. This is intimacy with God. I might regret that on Monday too. <laughs> but not really. Not really because actually if you read the New Testament, I'm being biblical here. All that. All that. Thank you, sister. All that. All that is, yeah, that's just a, an analog of intimacy with God. God marries his people. Heaven will be a concept. I'm going to quit trying to prove my point. It's biblical. It's biblical. But the point is this. The table, it doesn't get stale. I feel like over the last 20 years, I've, it's become more simple to me and more profound. You know, the presence of God as he invites us to his table. So they had the priority of those things. Now, I need to move on. Wow. I need to move on quickly to the effects of this. So availability and priority. What were the effects? I'm going to mention three, and they all start with ease. First of all, there was an emotional effect. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, and they praised God. Now, it's important to recognize that it's not that joy is the only holy emotion. Read the Psalms. But there is a fundamental aspect to joy in emotions. Other things I think we occasionally experience because of life, but joy is to be this constant. Jesus said, 
I will give you my joy. He's given them his joy. And, uh, and this makes me think, because I, to be honest with you, I've been going through a period where I'm struggling to be joyful. I don't know exactly what it is. And, um, and the tendency, I find there's two tendencies. One is, I, I don't know if you do this, but I think some of us probably do, is when you're feeling not that joy that comes from that, you, you kind of you, you look for what makes you happy, right? I mean, there's certain things, good things, I think, that God gives us. Maybe it's like, I'm going to go, like, take a run, or I'm going to go eat a bunch of ice cream, or I'm going to go and, like, watch a movie. Things that can be good gifts, but we find instead of them being, they be, almost become coping mechanisms, right? It's like your joy is like, what day is it? Oh, good. You know, this is the way of the world, right? It's 5 o'clock somewhere. It's Friday. You know, what it is, that's, it's basically an indictment on our joy. Like, and what begins to get you is when you look ahead, because uh, we also do this, I call it emotional forecasting. When you look ahead to your week and go, okay, that's going to be a crappy day. That's going to that's be a good day. You know, we already prepare for the mood we're going to be in. And um, so you find yourself looking ahead and go, you know, I don't, I don't see how this week's going to be joyful. In fact, I don't know how next week's going to be joyful. I don't know how the rest of my life is going to be joyful, right? You know? And if you let that hang too long, that, that can be scary. That's not a good thing. But I feel like the way Christians try to deal with that is if we don't get stuck there is we try to solve it individually. Okay, I know I need to get serious. I, this thing is starting to get at me. So I'm going to wake up. I'm going to spend more time. I'm going to pray. But we seek our joy with this individualistic thing. And their joy was corporate. I'm not saying you don't get individual joy of the Lord. But what I'm reading here is they came together and there was joy. Because I can borrow from your joy. I come here and I'm like, man, I feel a little bit better. There was also awe, and let me just say this real quick, uh, related to the wonders and signs of the apostles. And I say it because I think, again, we can go, well, they had that and we don't get to have that. Okay? First of all, if you look at, read, the, read the Bible, miracles didn't just like constantly happen. There were basically three ages of miracles, and they're all related to when God wanted to really show up and reveal himself. Moses in the time of Israel, Elijah, but those were just pointing to when Jesus would show up. There are clusters of miracles in different ages. And the reason the apostles are doing miracles, because it's a testimony that they are Jesus' sent ones. They belong to Jesus. It's verifying, ultimately, the words. Because what we're told in the book of Hebrews is those miracles were pointing to salvation. If you just, like, want a miracle to be happy, I mean, people that were healed, so, yeah, maybe they were happy, but how about three weeks from then? Because other stuff goes wrong in your life. Your leg got fixed, but something else goes wrong. The miracles were to point to the joy of salvation, the joy of grace, this idea that I could know God. But this is the better point. Jesus said to his apostles, I'm going to leave, and because I leave, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and greater things are going to happen. Greater things are going to happen. 
because the Holy Spirit is going to fall upon. We, we had our day of vision and prayer a couple weeks ago. And any time we stop, and we probably need to do this more, any time we stop and we stop the clock and we, you know, we hang out, we got, we got food, we're enjoying, and then people get up to speak and testify. And, and you can't help at the end of that going, man, God is at work. God does it work? Now, what if we had the view not only of our network, but our whole network? How about not just our network, but all the churches in the city? How about not all the churches in the city, all in the nation? How about all the churches all over the world throughout time? Greater things have been done. We sang about it. And greater things are going to keep happening. But remember, availability, priority, they're not unrelated. All right, a big part of this thing, economic. We have to hit this. The believers regularly practice selling their possessions, their lands, and their homes. Some were wealthy, some had less, some had more. But this was a big part of the witness. How do I know? Because when Luke gives us a second summary, listen to what he says. This is the second summary of the church, which we won't get to in another sermon. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, there are two poles we live between. One would be to say, well, is this, you know, instituting some sort of Christian communism or looking down on private ownership? Of course not. Private ownership is a biblical thing, and these things weren't forced or compelled. They were voluntary. They were flowing out of the gospel. So that's one pull. But here's the other one, the individualistic pull, which is say, I, my decisions of charity are basically baptized by God. Like, what I have is ultimately mine, and when I decide to give this and give that, and I would say the view throughout Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, is more expectant than that. It's not communism and socialism. It's not, a mo- it's not monastic. But it isn't probably like, you know, I'll, I, this is my stuff, and... I'll try to give a little bit of the way. There was this idea that, like, I look out of the community, and, and, and this probably related to prayer meetings. I think our community groups do this in a beautiful way. Our groups are small. I can't tell you how many times I hear someone was in need in the community group, and even before it gets to the, to the diaconate, the need has been met. Makes sense, right? Hospitality, prayer, I feel my brother's need. Of course, I'm giving to you. And I would say this is an argument for local giving. Like one of the ways that we try to do this in our church, there's the general offering, which is to, you know, help us do ministry and the people that happen to be on staff to help facilitate ministry. That's, God has a claim on that. But then we have our mercy offering once a month. 
And maybe you would see the mercy offering as this sort of thing. You would go, this is a regular thing built in that I can give to, that the, that the Acts 2 needs are being met, because they are. Our diaconate shows up all the time and says, uh, light bills were turned on, someone was able to go to counseling, someone's car busted down, someone needed a ride home to the... We're doing it. Lastly, the effects were emotional, economic, and evangelistic. It says they enjoyed favor with the outsiders. Now, of course, there were those that were hostile and persecuted Christians. But there was also this sense of favor. Why? It's hard to hate a community that we just read. You know, it's hard to hate a church that both, okay, you might sit there and go, I don't really like where they are about Jesus and the need to believe in him and the exclusivity. I don't like where they stand on uh, the position of sexuality. I don't like where they, you could go through the list. I don't like their view on life, on abortion. I don't, you could go through the list. But you have a church that's genuinely loving their neighbors and sacrificially giving to the needy and to the poor. It's hard not to be glad that church is in your city. One of my prayers would be, early on, was if we closed our doors, we would be missed. Not people-pleasing, like, oh, we love... That people would go, I didn't like that church, but dang, they, felt they, they filled a hole. They were filling a need. But that kind of church was extraordinary, attractive, we would even say irresistible to people. When Jesus prays, may they be one, that I read earlier, this is what he adds, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Right? And this is what happens. This is what happens. A community commits itself to these things, loving each other, praising the Lord. Yes, even devoting to study. It made me never thought, like, how, if I devoted myself to study, how would that help save my neighbor? Save someone else. But it's being the church. And what happens is, yeah, I can imagine, you know, you're walking through, they're walking through the temple and they're sort of like, what's going on here? And maybe they're walking by here going, why are all these people going to this building? And it seems like the people out front are actually genuinely nice and said hello. Or you're home. A bunch of people come over. There's laughter. Someone's kind to your neighbor as they're leaving their home. They talk to them a little bit. They come back and go, yeah, they mentioned this sort of need. And your friendship group meets that need. The people can't stay away from that. And so what, what we're praying and saying is, would you help us, Jesus? Give us your Holy Spirit that we might be more of this church. And emotionally, I think we'll all be a little bit happier. Needs are going to be met not only here but outside the city. And we're going to see more and more people drawn to Christ. Uh, it's not my plan, right? We just spend time looking at it. It's what the Holy Spirit does and what he's always done and what he's been doing here. I want more of it. Let's pray.